0: If you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to open it to Mark chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 21 through 34. And when you get there, you can stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. He also said to them, Is a lamp to be brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? Isn't it to be put on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed, and nothing concealed that will not be brought to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. By the measure you use it, it will be measured to you, and the more will be added to you. For whoever has, more will be given to him. And whoever does not have, Even what he has will be taken away from him. The kingdom of God is like this, he said. A man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that when sown upon the soil is the smallest of all the seeds on the ground. And when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants and produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. He was speaking the words to them with many parables like these as they were able to understand. He did not speak to them without parables. Privately, however, he explained everything to his own disciples. This is God's word. You may be seated. Does the name Huff Dalen Dusters mean anything to you? Huff-Dalen Dusters. This company was started in the 20s to protect cotton fields in the south from boll weevil insects. These beetles were on the verge of crashing the economy when this crop dusting company came on the scene with one plane in Georgia. The company started to pick up steam as it started to expand in Alabama, Texas, California, Mexico, and even Peru. During this expansion, a man named C.E. Woolman took over the operation, relocating everything to Monroe, Louisiana. Woolman wasn't satisfied with just spreading insecticide, so he decided to try something new. On September 13, 1928, a Huff-Dalen Duster pilot decided to fly people from one Peruvian city to another. Well, when Woolman saw this, he got a taste of what could be their company. So he gathered a bunch of his investors together, and later that year, he formed a company named Delta Airlines. Delta's first American flight was taken on June 17, 1929, from Dallas, Texas, to what many people call God's country. That is Jackson, Mississippi. I don't think anybody says that. But think about this with me for a moment. What do you think C.E. Woolman's reaction would have been on June 17th, 1929, if you would have told him less than 100 years, Delta Airlines would become one of the biggest airline companies in the world, serving up to 240 destinations in 50 countries across six continents. What was, his re- what was his reaction? What would have that been? Well, I think he would have laughed you out of the room. Why? Because it would have been almost impossible for him to square Delta's origins with the global force they are today. How could you imagine, predict, or think up something so seemingly small and insignificant that would grow into a t- company that would touch almost every inch of the globe? Well, Christ Fellowship, Jesus Christ, and the rest of the parables in Mark 4, he helps his followers understand that just because something looks small and insignificant, it doesn't mean that they should underestimate its value and growth. Just because it looks small and insignificant, don't underestimate its value and growth. The kingdom of God began in a way that nobody expected. But like Delta Airlines, Jesus teaches his disciples that the kingdom will grow into a global force to be reckoned with. Jesus calls his followers not to underestimate the kingdom just because they cannot see what is right in front of them. Jesus wants his disciples through these parables to understand that God doesn't always work quickly, but he works purposefully. So they're called to listen, wait, and walk confidently before him. In Christ's fellowship, although we're looking at the kingdom of God on this side of the cross, we too, we too might be questioning its significance. It can be difficult to perceive the greatness and power of the kingdom as we gaze at our world today. We might wonder, why is God working so slowly to usher in his perfected kingdom? Brothers and sisters, we too, like the disciples, We must be reminded that God doesn't always work quickly, but He works purposefully. So we're called to listen, wait, and walk confidently before Him. I have three points coming from Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. And I want to say that John MacArthur was really helpful in formulating these points. My first point is listen obediently, second, wait dependently, and my third point, walk confidently. Listen obediently, wait dependently, and walk confidently. Well, last Sunday, we observed Jesus' first and most important parable about the different kinds of soils. This parable worked to help Jesus' followers understand the reason for Israel's increasing rejection. It explained why every doesn't, everyone doesn't accept the message of Jesus. The parable taught that a special hearing was required God must create and till up good gospel soil so that gospel growth can take place. Although Jesus' followers were well informed about who's on the inside and outside of the kingdom, I must imagine that they were probably at this point questioning the effectiveness and the power of that very kingdom. Like John the Baptist sitting in a jail cell questioning Jesus' messianic role. Are you the one to come? Or should we look for someone else? It's like Jesus gives these parables to combat this very doubt about the kingdom. Is this the kingdom to come? Or should we look for something else? Jesus, through these parables, helps the disciples see that although the kingdom begins small, it looks weak, it seems insignificant, and even appears to be destroyed when the king gets crucified it will grow into something of cosmic significance. Jesus will teach them that this very kingdom will one day grow from minuscule to monumental. God doesn't always work quickly, but he works purposefully, ushering in a kingdom that will reach and include every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. Well, before Jesus begins to speak about the kingdom's growth, He gives a parable teaching his disciples about the promise of revelation and reward. Those who hear, well, those who hear will be given more. Yet those who close their ears, they will be left with nothing. Our first point, listen obediently. Look with me at verse 21. He also said to them, is a lamp to be brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? Isn't it to be put on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed, and nothing concealed that will not be brought to light. In the Greek, there's a definite article before the word lamp that reads, is the lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under the bed? Some people take this verse to mean that this metaphor of lamp, it points to Jesus. The lamp, so they're saying the lamp is Jesus. Jesus is the lamp to bring light and revelation to the world. And I want to say I'm sympathetic to that interpretation, but I don't think that's what the context suggests. You see, in verses 10 through 12, what did Jesus say? We said that these parables, the secrets of the kingdom, are given to the disciples, but everything um, comes in parables for those that are outside. The context suggests that the light represents the hidden secrets of the kingdom, shining forth for all to see. In the first century, a lamp was made from clay and filled with oil. They would set these small lamps on the edge of the wall, and they would do this at night. Why? so that light would illuminate the entire room. Well, this past Sunday, Trevor Stalnicker was helping me set up my office, since it gets converted to a nursery every Sunday. Well, when he was helping me, he put my wastebasket under my coffee table. Now, the wastebasket, I want to tell you, it fit perfectly. It had like an inch to spare. When I saw it, I realized I could not throw anything away. Immediately when I saw it, I thought of this verse. What was once useful or what was once useful has now become pointless. It's pretty obvious that no one puts a wastebasket under a coffee table. Sorry, Trevor. (laughs) Yet better yet, nobody puts a lamp under a basket. That defeats its purpose. Now, Jesus goes on to make this point even more explicit in verse 22. Look with me there. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. I love how the New Living Translation translate this verse. It's very helpful. The New, Tri- tr- New Living Translation says this. For everything that is hidden will eventually be brought into the open, and every secret will be brought to light. You see, throughout Jesus' ministry, what did he do? What does the final verse of our passage say? He mostly spoke in parables, keeping these heavenly secrets from the outsiders. Yet a time would come when the floodgates would open wide, bringing light to everything that Jesus kept hidden. It's interesting when you look at Mark chapter 9, verse 9, the mount of transfiguration just happened jesus transformed for his inner circle to show them all his glory and as they were coming down the mountain what did jesus say to his disciples he said this tell no one what you have seen until the son of man has what until the son of man has risen from the dead And I wanna say this was a common command that Jesus gave. This wasn't a rarity for him to say, hey, keep this a secret. Hey, when I heal you, don't tell anyone about this. And my question is, why does he do that? Why does he command people to be silent? Why tell the disciples this coming down from the mountain? Why tell those he healed to be silent? Don't tell anybody about this miracle. Well, I think one of the main reasons is that his messianic role carried wrong connotations. And only after his death and resurrection can Jesus rightly be known for who he truly is. Any attempt before would be purely speculation. That's why there's no contradiction between verses 11 and 12 when Jesus says, I speak in parables so that my truth might be hidden, and verses 21 through 22. Although mostly hidden now, Jesus' suffering servant and reigning king will soon be like a lamp on a stand displayed for all the world to see. I want to make one quick observation before we move on. Similar to the cross and resurrection, God's word will be vindicated on the last day. Similar to the cross and the resurrection, God's word will be vindicated on the last day. It will be brought to light, proving to be exactly what it said it was, the very word of God. Nothing will be concealed on that day, and every portion will prove to be accurate. It seems like as the days go by, God's word is being concealed in every sector of society. Sadly, even the religious sector. Yet a day is coming when those who have stood faithful to God's word will be vindicated before the nations. So Christ Fellowship, what is our command? Our command is take up the lamp, cast aside the basket, and hold up every single truth of God's word. You might look foolish and ignorant now, but you will be vindicated on the last day. Jesus promises that a day is coming when you will be shown to be right. Yet on that day, I have to imagine, I have to imagine that not a single person will say, I told you so. How could we? The consequences for those who close their ears will be devastating enough. Well, I think it's helpful to label verses 21 through 22 as the promise of revelation and then verses 24 to 25 as the promise of reward. So we have the promise of revelation, then we have the promise of reward. Revelation is being revealed, and it will continue to be revealed through Jesus and his disciples, but as we turn to verse 24, we see a promise from Jesus. What is this promise for those who listen? Well, if you pay careful attention to my words... Jesus promises that he will be vigilant to give you more of his words. These two verses are so encouraging because God's generosity, friends, God's generosity is on full display. I love the verses of Eric McAllister's song, What is Man? He says this, "'What is man that we can know him? "'He is infinitely great. "'Who were we to be invited? "'Beckon near to see and taste.'" Thanks to God, the God of heaven, reaching low to our estate to show he is Lord. Friends, marvel at the fact that God has condescended. He has come low to reveal himself to us. And this verse says that if we pay attention, if we pay attention, he will reveal more of himself to us. Does this not motivate us to seek God's word like a lost treasure? Does this not motivate us to study God's word, to read rich theological books, to discuss God's word with other brothers and sisters? This is a promise from the Lord that if we continue to dive in, he will divulge more of himself. Praise God for that reality. Yet he gives us a warning too at the end of verse 25. Those who close their ears to his word, they will lose anything they had from the start. If you do not use it, you will lose it, plain and simple. Well, now if we label verses 21 through 22, the promise of revelation, and verses 24 through 25, the promise of reward, really the hinge that holds these verses together is verse 23, and that is the command to respond. How do we move from revelation to reward? Well, this text tells us we must respond rightly to God's word. Jesus gives the exact same command in verse 23 that he did in verse 9. How are you rewarded? Well, you must understand that there's something deeper going on in these parables. You must have ears to hear these heavenly truths embedded in these earthly stories. Well, how can this happen? We talked about it last week. Divine grace is required. Yet when God intervenes, we must respond to these secrets unveiled before our very eyes. Now, this hearing involves both accepting that these words are from God and also applying them to our lives. Luke eleven twenty eight 28 says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. These parables are not simply factual information about the kingdom. No, they reveal the very conduct of the kingdom that we are to live by. I want to give one observation and one application to close this point out. Christ Fellowship, hearing and grumbling are opposite reactions to God's word. Hearing and grumbling are opposite reactions to God's word. I was reading Peter J. Williams, the surprising genius of Jesus this week, and he makes this point. Think about Israel. Israel is about to enter the land of Canaan, yet they refuse to do it. Why did they refuse to do it? Because there's giants living in the land. They're not listening to God. Numbers 14.1 says, The whole community broke into loud cries, and the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole community told them, If only we have died in the land of Egypt, or if only we would have died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Israel demonstrates right here that grumbling comes when we don't do what? When we don't listen to God. Those who hear God, they respond in trust. Yet those who close their ears, they inevitably respond with complaining and dissatisfaction. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to ask you a question. Do you find yourself frequently complaining about your job, your kids, your health, your circumstances, or even those around you? Although you might say they are the problem or they are the reason that I'm responding like this, have you ever thought, have you ever thought it might be your lack of hearing that you quit listening to God and that you actually started to listen to your flesh? Friend, the number one voice we need in our life is God. Yet when his voice gets muffled, when we can't hear his voice as we should, then what's inevitable? Well, that we're going to start complaining, that we're going to be dissatisfied with our life, that we're going to be grumblers. Well, I pray that this is not you. I pray that you would listen to God and you would turn your heart to them. Well, finally, one application for us Listen to and apply God's word today, not tomorrow. Listen to and apply God's word today, not tomorrow. In Christopher Ashe's little book, Listen Up, he tells a quick story about a senior devil training his junior devils. He writes this. The senior devil asked them, what are they going to tell human beings? Well, one is going to try. There is no God. The senior devil thinks it's worth a try, but doesn't think that many people will be foolish enough to fall for that. A second suggests there is no judgment. The senior devil thinks that's better, but still doubts he'll have much success because people have an inbuilt sense of accountability and an understanding that our actions have consequences. Any other ideas, he said? Well, how about there's no hurry, pipes up a third. The senior devil warmly congratulates him. That's exactly the message that will be most widely believed and will do, in fact, the most damage. Every time we read God's word, listen to a sermon, or attend a Bible study, the devil whispers in our ear, just put this off for tomorrow. Repent tomorrow. Reconcile tomorrow. Resolve to be obedient tomorrow. Ash continues to write, to hear God's word and not respond is worse than not hearing at all. It makes us more guilty than we were before. Christ Fellowship, let's resolve not to harden our hearts today, but respond obediently by listening to and applying God's word. And the beauty about that is that we see in this passage, if we do it, He is going to give us more of himself. He is going to open up his word more and more to us. I pray that we would resolve to do that very thing. Well, Jesus in verse 26 continues to give the crowd postcards from heaven, showing just what the kingdom of God is like. He compares it to a sleepy farmer who watches his crops grow, but doesn't exactly know how they grow. Our second point, wait dependently. About a year ago, Shirley Smith gave Kelson and me a beautiful plant called a Linton Rose. The Smiths moved out of, their, out of their house to an apartment and they didn't have a front yard or a garden to plant this plant, so they showed up to our house and they gave us this beautiful plant. And I remember us in my front yard planting it, so we all together took a shovel, dug the hole, and planted it. And I gotta tell you, <laughs> I think Shirley probably knows, like I think it's pretty obvious, that I don't really give off kind of a green thumb vibe. (laughs) I mean, I'm thankful for flowers, but Shirley had to know that I wasn't going to care for those flowers like I care for my golf clubs. (laughs) Nevertheless, as I was walking out my front door about two weeks ago, I literally stopped I saw the plant and I had to go back inside to tell Kelsey how beautiful the plant looked, how it was fully bloomed. And I said to myself at that moment, this can only be the work of God. We planted, we left it to bloom, but God gave it the growth. Christ Fellowship in verses 26 through 29, Jesus gives a very self-evident parable that highlights God's sovereignty in the growth of his kingdom. Look with me there. Jesus says this. The kingdom of God is like this, he said. A man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soul produces a crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, and then the full grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come to remind you, the kingdom of God is what? It's God's redemptive rule and reign. That's what Jesus is speaking about right here, saying the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is his redemptive rule and reign, his loving kindness that is exercised over his people. And Jesus came to preach about the kingdom and call people to enter that very kingdom through repentance and faith. And this parable teaches us about what? This parable teaches us about the growth of the kingdom. Now we have to ask the question, what does it mean for the kingdom to grow? Can an eternal kingdom actually grow? Well, I want to say the parable isn't saying that the kingdom of God grows in power or essence. The kingdom is what it is. But it grows when people receive it by recognizing God's reign, living under it, and being governed by it. The kingdom expands when more and more people submit to God's authority. That's what it means when he's talking about the kingdom of God grows. Well, in our parable, Jesus explains that the one who sows does not determine if the seed sprouts or grows, nor does he determine how many plants make up the harvest. The sower has one and only one responsibility. What is it? to sow the seed, to plant. That's exactly right. So what is Jesus saying in this parable? Well, I think Paul answers that question in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 6 through 7. Paul writes this. This is a well-known passage. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then, "'Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters "'is anything but what, but only God who gives the growth. "'God's kingdom spreads in the hearts of men "'through the preached word. "'Nevertheless, the parable of the sleepy farmer "'teaches us that it's ultimately God who gives the growth. "'It's not his disciples.'" God certainly uses the preaching of his word as his disciples will go out to all nations proclaiming the inauguration of the kingdom through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But again, the disciples are not building the kingdom. They are not growing the kingdom. That is only God's role. So, brothers and sisters, I want to state this again. This parable presents the tension of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And I want to say that when we think about this, it's hard to understand. And we can easily start to fall in these two ditches. Number one, we are spectators watching God's rule and reign go forth without any participation of our own. We don't have any effort to play. That's one ditch we can fall in. But another ditch we can fall in is to say that it's all up to us. That we determine when the kingdom goes out. That we determine its growth and harvest. And that's not true either. Let's not fall on either side of those ditches. God's divine sovereignty does not neglect the necessity of our efforts to evangelize. If Shirley hadn't come to plant that plant in my front yard, We would have never seen it bloom. Yet, if we do not share the gospel, people will not be saved. That's what Romans 10 says. Paul says, how can they hear without a preacher? That's a rhetorical question. They can't. Yet, on the other side, how can they believe if God does not give them the growth? Well, they can't. That's what we learned in the parable of the sower. The parable of the sleepy farmer reveals to us that the farmer is responsible. He's responsible for sowing seeds, but God is the one who gives the growth. I taught at a high school chapel a couple weeks ago, and after the talk concluded, I went to a coffee shop to do some work, and I kept thinking to myself as I was at that coffee shop, man, why did I not connect with the students I mean, I spent a decent amount of time going through my talk. I spent a decent amount of time thinking about the talk. I felt like I communicated it in a helpful way, but something was missing. There was this disconnect that happened, and I couldn't put my finger on it. Well, at that coffee shop, I sat down, immediately opened up my Bible to Mark 4 and started to read these parables. And almost immediately, the Lord convicted me that I did everything but pray that God would give the growth. I was cut to the heart. I did, 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 but sadly, I did not depend, depend, depend. And I wouldn't say that I would explicitly say that I'm the one that builds the kingdom. I would have never said that but my actions showed that very thing. Brother and sister, one thing that this parable teaches us is to wholeheartedly depend on the God that produces gospel growth. Not too long ago, Peter sent out such a helpful list for our congregation to pray through. And one of those prayers was this, that God would grant us the joy of seeing men, women, boys, and girls saved through the ministry of our church in 2024. Christ Fellowship, what the parable of the sleepy farmer is communicating, and Peter is communicating in this prayer that, again, unless God gives the growth, the harvest will not come. So what do we do? We depend on God. We preach the gospel and we pray, and I think if we do that, if we continue to preach and pray, preach and pray, preach and pray, then God will allow us to see many men, women, boys and girls come to faith through the ministry of this church. But we got to depend on the Lord. Well, Jesus in verse 29 finishes the parable by echoing an Old Testament minor prophet speaking about judgment. He's alluding to Joel 3.13, where Joel prophesied this, swing the sickle because the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes because the wine press is full. The wine vats overflow because the wickedness of the nations is extreme. What does Jesus mean by alluding to this prophecy of judgment? Well, he's saying that although the speed of God's growth might seem slow moving, it's indeed leading to a specific destination. It's leading to a harvest. Jesus gives us this slow growing process in verse 28. You can look with me there. First the blade, then the head, then the full grain on the head. And then he moves to verse 29 to help us see that this growth is leading to a specific place. The kingdom of God is growing and growing, yet one day this growth will end, and the consummation of the kingdom will begin, bringing judgment to all nations. Well, if you're not a follower of Christ in this room, I want to ask you a question. Are you ready for this harvest? John the Baptist, during his ministry, spoke about this same reality, saying, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will burn with an unquenchable fire. Friend, although the parable of the sleepy farmer might communicate that you have lots of time, You have lots of time before this day is going to come about. Have you ever considered that Jesus gave this parable 2,000 years ago? Have you ever considered, too, that the way in which the Bible speaks about the day of the Lord, the last day, is that it's near, that it's fast approaching? And so our question to you is, that day is coming, and are you ready to meet your Maker? That day is coming, and are you ready to meet your maker? If you asked so many people in this room right now, members of Christ Fellowship, you would ask him that same question, are you ready for that day? Are you ready to meet your maker? You know what every single person would say? Every single person would say, yes, we desperately want to meet our maker. And my question is, how is that? How can we as a people who are sinful and fall short of the glory of God say, yes, we want to go before the Lord. We desperately want to see him in his glory. How can we say that? We can say that because of Jesus Christ. We can say that because he reconciles us to the Father through his life, death, and resurrection. Friend, you can be ready to meet your maker, but you have to repent because if you don't, there will be condemnation. But if you do, there will be life and you will be with the Father for all eternity. We prayed that you would do that today. Well, What is implicit in the parable of the sleepy farmer becomes explicit in the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom might look unimpressive now, but it will over time turn into a kingdom of cosmic significance. It has a true acorn to oak tree type of storyline. To our last point, walk confidently. Well, we live in a day and age where everything happens so quickly. If you want to lose weight, what do you do? Well, you schedule a gastric bypass or you go get a tummy tuck. Did you forget that your child has a Valentine's Day party this week? Well, all you have to do is just order something on Amazon that night and guess what? It's gonna show up to your house in the morning before you wake up. Mobile ordering, that's the new thing. You don't even have to wait in line anymore. You just order on your phone, go right to the front of the line and grab your coffee. I didn't even mention the internet. What once took hours or even days to retrieve information now takes literally seconds. And with the rise of AI, It's fueled our dependence on immediate information even more. Everything happens so quickly in our day and age, and what really doesn't happen quickly has now become a waste of our time. What doesn't happen quickly has now become a waste of our time. And I feel like this has bled over into the church. Churches that don't take off, They must be failing. College ministries that are not busting at the seams, they're considered unfruitful. And preachers that don't have a thousand views per sermon, they're not worth your time to listen to. We can easily fall into the trap that looks at speedy growth as success and slow-moving growth as failure. Nevertheless, the parable of the mustard seed teaches us that slow growth of the kingdom is not a sign of failure. For that is often how God works. God doesn't always work quickly, but he works purposefully. So we must trust in his timing to grow his kingdom. Look with me at the parable starting in verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable can we describe it? It's like a mustard seed that when sown upon the soil is the smallest of all the seeds on the ground. And when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the other garden plants and produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. Again, like our last parable, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. He says it's the smallest of the seeds. And some people will argue well this actually isn't the smallest of the seeds. Has anybody ever heard somebody say that? This actually isn't the smallest of the seeds. Jesus is making an error. So what does that mean? Well that means our Bible is full of errors. Errors. Well Christ fellowship many people's only agenda who argue this point is to disprove the Bible. And please hear me, it's so obvious because this is such a poor argument. Jesus is not a botanist writing a textbook on plants. He's the greatest teacher ever lived using hyperbole for emphasis. His point is very straightforward. The seed is what? It's really, really small. If you were to put it on the tip of your finger, you could barely see it. Yet his point is also, it's really tiny now, but it doesn't stay that way. What's its final size? Well, the mustard seed turns into the greatest of all the shrubs that towers over everything in the garden, producing large branches that the birds of the sky can take shelter in. Well, when Jesus' references the large branches and birds nesting in their shade, if a good student of the Old Testament was in that crowd, he would immediately thought of Ezekiel 17 that was read earlier in our service. Ezekiel prophesies about a sprig becoming a majestic cedar that will house every bird of its kind, taking shelter in its branches. The birds of every kind represent the nations taking shade in this eschatological and gathering and please do not miss this. Jesus is alluding to Ezekiel's prophecy in this verse, claiming that the kingdom of God that they're laying their eyes on at this moment will one day will one day evolve into the mightiest kingdom, embracing all the peoples of the world. What appears to be the smallest, what appears to be the smallest is actually the greatest. Jesus is explaining this very truth so that his disciples can walk confidently before him, even if the kingdom at this moment, even if it seems small, hidden, and largely overlooked. There's this famous tree called Sherman's Tree in one of the national parks in California, and this tree towers 275 feet in the air, which is about the same size as the Statue of Liberty. That's insane what the Statue of Liberty took three years to construct. People think this tree has been growing for 2,000 years. At its heyday, the tree was growing maybe two feet per year. The small sapling grew into a mighty sequoia, yet it took time. It took lots of time. And this is Jesus' point that he's making. The kingdom of God in Mark 4, it looks quite unimpressive. What does it consist of? It consists of a Galilean teacher and his disciples, mostly fishermen and tax collectors. Yet over time, this kingdom will grow and grow and grow. And I want to say paradoxically, it's going to grow to reach all the world Because the king of the kingdom gets crucified and rises from the dead. I want to say no other king rules like that. No king's authority goes forth because he lays down his own life. Yet that's why the kingdom of God is so unique. Our king voluntarily died so that the enemies of his kingdom might become the very citizens of his kingdom. Paul writes this in Colossians 1.14. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And at the end, we see this eschatological in gathering in Revelation 5, and who is present there? Well, the text says that every tribe, tongue, language, and nation are all surrounded, um, all surrounded in the throne of God worshiping the lamb. The, king, the kingdom might look unimpressive now, but everyone will see its glorious end one day. Well, I wanna finish our time with just two observations, and then we will pray and conclude. First, don't despise small beginnings. Don't despise small beginnings. Friend, when we think about the ministries we support at this church, I think we might be tempted to look at these ministries and downplay their impact for the kingdom. Wasn't this the same temptation that the disciples had? Wasn't this the same temptation that John the Baptist had? Yes. Remember that change is often very slow and success isn't always visible. It took years for the mustard seed to grow into a large shrub or the sapling to grow into a towering sequoia. And likewise, it might take years for these ministries to bring about change and to see visible fruit. Yeah, my question for us is how will they experience that growth? I think the answer is simple. We must come alongside them in the seemingly insignificant years to pray, work, and help these ministries. Our involvement in the beginning is how these ministries will eventually grow. If you look at verse 34, you will see this application. Jesus explained everything to his own disciples so that they would do what? So that they would go and proclaim the kingdom of God to others. The disciples were instrumental in the growing of the kingdom. And friends, we too, we have so many different opportunities in this church to partner with amazing ministries like the Cambridge House, Pineapple Inn, Good News and Jail Ministry, the Good News Bible Club, or the Tribe for Life. These ministries have a potential to make a massive impact for the kingdom of God. In Christ Fellowship, we have the privilege, we have the privilege to pray, to play a great part in their growth. I hope that we will have the vision of a mustard seed, causing us not to despise small beginnings. Well, finally, the growth of the Lord's kingdom is at, time, is at times unnoticeable to us, but that shouldn't lead us to doubt its existence. The mustard seed's growth, especially at the beginning, was largely imperceivable, showing that the kingdom's growth is not always visible. Even if we can't see the growth, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that it is growing and it's leading to a final destination. It's absolutely certain. That's what we see in Revelation 5, that the kingdom is going to consist of every tribe, language, people, and nation. So what do we do while we wait? Well, we don't allow the imperceptible nature of the kingdom to overshadow the certainties of the kingdom. God promised that he would bring his son into the world to save sinners. And what did he do? He did that. And he also promises that his son will come again to usher in the perfected kingdom. Although we're a part of the proclaimed kingdom now, the perfected kingdom is coming. The consummation is near. That's what we read at the end of Revelation when Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. But what do we do in the meantime as we wait? When we listen obediently, we wait dependently, and we walk confidently before our God. Let's pray.